Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 748 for the 18th of June, 2021. This week, there has never been a better time to be an amateur photographer. The ranks of professional photographers have been decimated as this industry becomes yet another to fall victim to the powers that personal computers give ordinary people. In short circuits, this week's security section considers drive-by website attacks and how we can avoid having our computers taken over by malware. Internet Explorer will finally be dead a year from now. You should already be using some other browser, but as of mid-June 2022, you won't have much choice. In spare parts, only on the website, Microsoft seems to be working on virtual Windows, the ability to run Windows on cloud-based computers via a thin client. So it's back to the 1980s for the future of the 2020s. Crypto mining is lucrative, and that's why crooks want to take over your computer and have it work for them. And 20 years ago, the Degree Confluence Project had just started to capture images from locations where one-degree intersections of latitude and longitude occurred. They're still working on it. Just about everybody walks around with a camera in their pocket or purse these days. So do big SLR cameras with interchangeable lenses still serve any purpose? Well, they do, of course, but the landscape has changed. It's really not about the hardware. Some photographers can be offended by remarks such as, Your pictures are really great. What kind of camera do you use? This doesn't offend me, but it does tell me the person asking the question hasn't really thought about it very much. Asking an award-winning chef about the pots and pans used, a plumber about the tools used, or a seamstress about the sewing machine all exhibit a lack of knowledge about how artists and craftspeople create their works. It's them, not their tools. The proper camera, lens, and lighting gear for a given job are all important choices, but one clever photographer once said, the best camera in the world is the one in your hand. It doesn't matter what camera is in your bag or at home on a shelf. If you have a camera bag full of $35,000 worth of gear at home and you have a smartphone in your hand, the camera in the smartphone is the best camera you have make the most of it. I have owned 4x5-inch sheet film cameras, 120 roll film cameras, 35mm single-lens reflex cameras, digital SLRs, digital point-and-shoot cameras, and smartphones. There's a digital SLR at home with specs that far exceed those of the digital point-and-shoot camera that I often reach for simply because it's small and light. And it's far better than the camera built into my Pixel phone but I've used the camera in the phone much more than any other camera in the past six months or so. So how much quality do we really need? Before going any further, let's take a look at some images to see if you can tell the difference between photos captured on a Canon 80D digital SLR 
and those captured on a Pixel 4XL smartphone. You'll have to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website to check this out, and you'll find a key at the bottom of the article that tells you which image was captured by which camera. The first photo you'll see is from Main Street in Bellefountain, Ohio. I was standing on the front steps of the First Presbyterian Church looking southeast at Citizens Federal Savings and Loan and the Logan County Courthouse in the background. Which camera do you think took that image? The second photo was taken from the water tower at the Scioto Audubon Metro Park just south of downtown Columbus looking north. Which camera did I take with me when I climbed the water tower? Image number three is, of course, a cat. No TechBiter Worldwide article that touches on photography is ever complete without at least one cat. It's Chloe Cat, who you hear at the end of each podcast. She fell asleep one day while supervising me. A Canon 80D digital SLR, a Sony RX100 Mark VI, and a Pixel XL smartphone were all within easy reach. Which one do you think I picked? Image number four is at a ballpark. Grandson Judah was playing ball, and grandson Roman was watching through the fence. Before you decide which camera I used for that photo, I should mention that it has been cropped quite a bit. And finally, a fifth image, one more of Chloe. She was sitting on her cat tree in the office, about 10 feet from the desk where I was working. A Canon 80D digital SLR, a Sony RX100 Mark VI, and a Pixel XL smartphone, all nearby. Which one did I pick up? Be sure to check the key at the end of the article to learn which camera took which picture. So to continue with the primary topic, some photographers say there is never any reason to use RAW mode, even though most cameras offer it now. Others say that RAW mode is the only mode to use. I've never been in either of those camps, although I have generally used RAW mode most of the time. That is still the case if I'm using a true camera. RAW mode is supported on some smartphone cameras when used with specific applications, such as Adobe's Lightroom camera. RAW mode images consume a lot of space on a mobile phone, though, in addition to making the process slower and causing the phone to run much hotter. So when I'm using the phone, the choice is usually JPEG. You may be surprised to find that even cropped JPEG images from a smartphone contain sufficient data for full-quality on-screen images, as well as for photographic prints up to maybe 8 by 10 inches. Large sensors and RAW mode will always provide more data that's essential for high-end use, though. Similarly, too many photographers try to convince, or shame, amateur photographers into using nothing but manual mode. Some photographers have an odd way of looking at technology. Auto-anything may be condemned for years before being accepted. During the 1970s, professional photographers wanted nothing to do with 35mm cameras. They were toys. The through-the-lens exposure metering that had been invented in the 1960s, and most photographers resisted it until the 1980s. Polaroid developed autofocus lenses in the 1970s. Minolta had the first successful autofocus system for 35mm cameras. Canon and Nikon quickly followed, but many pros said they could focus better and faster manually. Today's sophisticated multi-zone metering systems can calculate balanced settings for shutter speed, lens aperture, and sensor ISO sensitivity in a few milliseconds. Most of the time, program mode works very well. 
but there are still memes that disparage those who use it. The key with any programmed mode is knowing when the program settings are likely to be wrong. That's when it's time to switch to manual mode. I found that program mode is correct for all but the most extreme conditions, and raw mode images make it possible to make significant adjustments later. Putting a camera in everyone's pocket or purse has been great for those of us who like to take casual photos and share them, less good for professional photographers. There are few average photographers these days. The photographers who could do routine head-and-shoulder shots, family group photos in which people were stacked up like cordwood, and unimaginative wedding photos are mostly gone. A small number of talented photographers who know how to promote themselves well are profitable. Semi-pros who have day jobs do much of the rest of the work, and families take a lot of their own photos. Technology has had that effect on no small number of businesses, typesetters and printers, video and audio production, and many other businesses that depended on specialized tools that can now be emulated on computers. But it is a great time for motivated amateurs. Lightroom, Photoshop, Exposure, Luminar, and other digital editing tools do much more than what photographers were able to do in the darkroom. For one thing, darkrooms had no undo button. For anything more than a trivial image, a test print was necessary. Because the test print couldn't be viewed accurately while wet, it had to be fully processed and dried. That took time. Then the photographer marked the print for areas that needed to be lightened by dodging or darkened by burning. The next print might be right, but the process generally required more iterations, taking 10 or 15 minutes each. And when the final print was ready, creating another required repeating the process. It wasn't quick, it wasn't easy, and color made the process even more difficult by adding the need for correct color balance. Today's photographers can modify images and see the results instantly, and the capabilities of software go far beyond what even the most talented darkroom artist could achieve. If you've been creating digital images for more than a few years, revisiting some of those older images might be worth your time, particularly if you have older raw images, but even if all of your images are in JPEG format. Applications such as Adobe Lightroom receive frequent updates that add processing features and improve the basic handling of digital files, so reprocessing old files does make a lot of sense. Those who have old slides, negatives, or prints have a wide variety of options for digitizing them. The least satisfactory option involves scanning photographs, but that option is still far better than allowing the images to be lost. Digitized images can be widely shared with family members and stored online where they're safer from loss. Companies such as Scan Cafe can digitize many types of old media, although images digitized as TIFF files offer more options for improving color balance and exposure, that is an expensive option. High-resolution JPEG files created with minimal compression are sufficient for most uses. One thing that professional photographers knew was that the way to improve was to take more pictures. Digital photography makes it possible for amateurs to do this. After buying the camera, all of the photographs are free. It costs no more to take 100 photos than it does to take just one. If you want to improve your technique, take more pictures, then analyze them to see what worked and what didn't.
and enjoy living at a time when photography offers so much to so many. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, a few weeks ago, we learned that the FBI managed to claw back about half of the ransom paid by Colonial Pipeline to ransomware pirates in Russia. That's good news, but the problem hasn't been solved by any means, and there are few hopeful signs. Caution is paramount. Ransomware is often planted on a computer by convincing the user to open an email attachment or visit a website. The crooks have a lower chance of success if the computer's operating system, programs, protective applications, and user are all up to date and working well. But there's no guarantee. Wannabe pirates can buy essential attack tools on the dark web, and many of the crooks are the products of countries with good technical education systems and few employment options for those who master the technology. Russia comes to mind. Once malware is installed on a computer, it tries to branch out through the network, and it can affect other machines or extract data from them. Not all the risky tools are on the dark web. There are legitimate applications that perform essential functions, but can also be used for illegal purposes. Developer Nearsoft offers many useful utilities, and I've used a lot of them. Prodikey displays the product ID and CD key for Windows and Microsoft Office 2003 through 2007. It can be used on the computer it's running on or on a remote computer. This is an application that's helpful for people who have lost the product key and need to reinstall the software, but it can also be deployed to pull product keys from other computers on the network, which makes it a valuable hack tool. Likewise, scanners, applications that provide secure connections to servers, and a host of other utilities can all be used for good or bad purposes. If you visit a malicious website that tries to install malware, you'll be the victim of what's called a drive-by hacking. These sites attempt to scan your computer for vulnerable services and ports. A firewall can be helpful, and Microsoft's built-in firewall is adequate to protect home computers, but beware of external devices that connect via Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. Far too many of these devices have only minimal security, and they can open a path to your computer and your network. Especially Internet of Things devices should be suspect. They are often overlooked when performing security audits, but they are vulnerable because security is almost always an afterthought. Devices on your network are trusted because they are local to your network. Smartphones need protective applications too because they're almost always linked to or synchronized with computers. Identify these devices and perform security audits on them. Keep the firmware that runs the devices up to date, and if you no longer use an attached device, don't leave it on the network. Somebody down the street, 
or halfway around the world probably wants access to your computer. Be careful not to let them have it. The official end of life for Microsoft's Internet Explorer is coming, but it's still a year in the future. All support will end for Internet Explorer on the 15th of June, 2022. So now the browser is forgotten, but not yet gone. The first version of Edge will be supported for a while, but Microsoft would really like you to start using the Chromium-based Edge. Internet Explorer was hated by website developers, and Microsoft's initial effort to replace it with Edge didn't fare much better. Nearly all browsers are now based on Chromium, not Firefox, though, and it is still my preferred browser. More about that next week. We are here today to bury Internet Explorer, not to praise it. Microsoft announced the retirement of Internet Explorer 11 in mid-May. All support for Microsoft 365 via Internet Explorer ends in mid-August. Next June, the browser is officially gone. Presumably, it will be possible for anyone who wants to continue using IE to do so, but it's pretty hard for me to think of any reason that somebody would want to do that. The new Edge browser is a massive improvement over the original Edge and a sea change from IE. Take compatibility, for example. Internet Explorer forced website developers to create convoluted code to fit IE's quirks, Many of those sites still exist, so Edge has an Internet Explorer mode that supports these sites. This really isn't necessary because any decent website developer will also have included code to work with Chromium-based browsers, Firefox, and Safari. Edge also has far better security than earlier Microsoft browsers. It includes protection against both phishing attacks and malware on Windows 10 with Microsoft Defender Smart Screen. It also offers Password Monitor, which scans the dark web to identify if and when your personal credentials have been compromised. If you prefer Microsoft's browser or just want to try it out, now is a good time to upgrade to the new Edge. If you have a Windows 10 computer, it's probably already installed. For those who don't yet have it installed, Edge can be downloaded from Microsoft's website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you'd like to get a little bit further ahead, try downloading the beta, dev, or canary channel version. You'll find a link to that option, too. Sean Lindersay, writing on Microsoft's blog, says the conversion process will be more complex for business users. Many businesses developed their own applications that depended on the security nightmare known as ActiveX. Because a lot of those applications have not been replaced or rewritten, Edge's Internet Explorer mode includes support for ActiveX. Lindersay explains, you may have a surprisingly large set of legacy Internet Explorer-based websites and apps built up over many years. In fact, we found that enterprises have 1,678 legacy apps on average. He says the Internet Explorer mode in Microsoft Edge will be supported at least through 2029. The browser you're using makes no difference for spare parts. No matter which browser you prefer, visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles in spare parts.
Microsoft seems to be working on virtual windows, the ability to run windows on cloud-based computers via a thin client. So it's back to the 1980s for the future of the 2020s. Crypto mining is lucrative. That's why crooks want to take over your computer and have it work for them. You should make that not happen. And 20 years ago, the Degree Confluence Project had just started to capture images from locations where one-degree intersections of latitude and longitude occurred. They're still working on it. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.